Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney, the Dean of Beeson Divinity School, and I'm here today with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. We are honored to be speaking with our guest, N.T. Wright, who is probably the best-known biblical theologian at work today in all the world, and who will be speaking in our chapel service in just a couple of hours. Kristen, Dr. Wright is one of those guests who needs little introduction. All the same, why don't you make sure that everyone listening to us knows who he is? Sure. Thank you, Doug, and welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Dr. N.T. Wright is at Samford University this week, September 9 through 12, 2019, for our first Provost Distinguished Lecture Series. He is the Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. He previously taught New Testament at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford Universities before serving the church in various posts, finally as Bishop of Durham. A world-renowned scholar, Dr. Wright has published more than 80 books at both academic and popular levels and has broadcast frequently on radio and TV. He is married and has four children and five grandchildren. Welcome, Dr. Wright, to the Beeson Podcast. Good to be with you. Thank you. We want our conversation today to be very personal in nature, so I've given a professional bio of you. But if you could begin by introducing yourself, perhaps by starting at the beginning, where you are from, a little bit about your family, and how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you. I come from Northumberland, which is the most uh, northeasterly of the English counties. It's the kind of English equivalent of Maine. It's the top right-hand corner. So close to the Scottish border and close to the ancient city of Newcastle, which people know not least because it has a famous football team, um, at least famous in our English mm-hmm. context. And my father's family had lived in Northumberland for ooh, two or three hundred years. They were from Cumbria on the west side originally, but had moved over. And my father was a businessman who'd inherited a, a small family firm which was a timber firm, and uh, he was the fifth generation to, to run that firm. And when I was a small boy, I assumed that since I was the oldest son, I would take it on when he gave it up. And it was kind of a relief to me when, at a certain stage, he uh, said something about when you decide what you want to do with your life. And I thought, you mean I have a choice? Because the other side of the family was much more attracting to me because my mother's father was a parish priest uh, as an Anglican priest and ended up as an archdeacon, actually, in rural North Northumberland, which is beautiful, beautiful county and lovely seacoast etc. And my mother's father had the same name that I was given, which is Tom, my my second name, but that's the name I've been known by. And I guess I probably instinctively identified with him and seeing him leading worship and preaching and so on. I just think as a small boy, I thought that's that's a good thing to do. And uh, so growing up in a church-going family, because both sides were church-going, just my father's family were lay people and my mother's family had a lot of clergy and not just my grandfather. It was quite natural. We would say prayers every night. We would sing hymns around the piano on a Sunday afternoon. We'd go to church every week without fail, to the extent that I remember once when we'd been traveling on vacation and the journey had taken longer than we thought and we didn't go to church that Sunday. And it made a, the sort of impression it would make on you if one morning the sun rose at the, in the wrong part of the sky. You know, 
the, the world is, is, is something wrong with the world. And so I, I grew up in that context. And from an early age, I knew the hymns and the psalms and bits and pieces of, of, of Bible. And so I don't have a moment when, having definitely been an unbeliever, I became a believer. But there were several stages, and one I remember particularly when I was, I think, about seven or eight, when uh, for some reason, I don't know why, I wish I didn't know why, I've, I remember feeling suddenly overwhelmed by the love of God as expressed in the death of Jesus and Jesus dying for me. And that for me was not sort of something new which contradicted everything before, but a sort of a sudden rush of deepening to what had been latent before. And that's that's really never left me. So um, I, I'm, I'm sometimes slightly jealous of people who have good conversion stories, but I, I just don't have one. <laughs> that's how it was. Dr. Wright, most of the people in our audience know about you and your work at least a little bit. And what we think we know about you is that you've been a churchman for many, many years, mm -hmm. and you've mm -hmm. been a scholar for mm -hmm. many years. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about when it was that you felt like God wanted you to go into ministry and then talk a little yeah. bit about yeah. how you decided to become a scholar? And if you can remember a third question... <laughs> how you've thought about combining your churchmanship and your yeah, scholarship over it's a, the years. It's a very good question. It follows naturally from what I said, that um, uh, from an early age, from at least that time, sort of seven or eight, it wasn't so much a choice. It was it was just knowing this is what I'm going to do and, and wasn't quite sure what it meant particularly because we worshipped in a very middly Anglican church and I knew the clergy there and my father was a church warden. And so it was just, I assumed that there was a natural progression that you went to college and you studied things and then you put on one of these dog collars and you stood up and got on with it. And and it was really in my teens that was that was where I was heading and that was why I chose, for instance, to study classics because I wanted to do uh, to understand early Christianity in its context. I wanted to do the Greek and uh, everyone studied Latin in those days in England, so I had that already. So there, there was something natural about that. Then it, it was a curious thing when I was in my late teens and then went to college myself to to Oxford to study classics. I, I had a sort of attention that as I looked at parish life and parish ministry, one part of me knew that that was what I was called to, but another part was thinking I don't feel a kind of great yearning to do exactly that, but I do want to preach, I do want to teach, and so was I, I just assumed that I would come into it and it would it would work out, but I couldn't quite I didn't quite have a a sense of being drawn there. And then when I was doing philosophy particularly, I basically discovered that there was such a thing as academic life and that I was attracted to it. And rather to my surprise, I seemed to be quite good at the philosophy stuff and ancient history as well, but philosophy was the thing. So then when I studied theology as a second degree, at once I was thinking, oh, this is what I have to do with my whole life. And then it was a question of how does that fit with ordained ministry? And I was firmly told by one tutor at my seminary, you have to make a choice. You can't be both an academic and a priest. And I remember being told that, and I was quite young, and I didn't want to contradict him, but I remember sitting in his study thinking, I'm not going to say it, but you're wrong. <laughs> I'm going to do both. And uh, that's been difficult because both ministry and the academic life are increasingly demanding. There was a time when you could be a parish priest and a scholar. Um, those days are long gone, certainly in England. Um, the administrative demands, the pastoral demands, you know, academics these days, there's so much stuff out there, so much secondary literature on the Bible, that it's very difficult to do both. So I've 
moved from A to B and back to A and back to B again. And I, I keep on doing that and trying to maintain the other side of me, as it were, while I'm doing whatever it is. And that's been difficult, but it's also been quite enriching um, for me and possibly, I don't know, for, for people whose lives I touch. So that's how it's worked. Might I ask a follow-up question, Kristen? I'm interested in hearing from Dr. Wright if there are any ways you can identify that might be interesting for our Beeson-related community to hear in which your churchmanship has changed the way you have practiced scholarship or vice versa, that the way your scholarship has yeah. changed the way you've served the church. Yeah. yeah. I think for me there were some role models who I was following, going way back, people obviously 100 years ago, so I, not people I knew, but people I knew about, um, the two great bishops of Durham in the late 19th century, uh, Lightfoot and Westcott, who were great churchmen and leading New Testament scholars. And they were always kind of back markers that, oh my goodness, that's an amazing way to be. And then when I was studying myself, my own mentor, George Caird, who was from the United Reformed Church, he was very much a churchman and also very much a scholar. And also Professor C.F.D. Mole, Charlie Mole in Cambridge, and very much a churchman, very much a scholar. And so there were role models where you could see that such people would um, take all the richness of their scholarship and distill it down into sermons or village Bible studies or whatever it was. And also that um, the, the analogy that I've used many times, because music is a very important part of my life, is that um, when you study music at a, at a high level, at university or whatever, because uh, would you rather be taught music by somebody who was about to dash off and conduct um, Bach's B minor mass or by somebody who was tone deaf and didn't care about it? Of course you'd rather be taught by the one who was engaged, even if his or her interpretations of that music were a bit wacky. You know, you'd still think, here's somebody who's actually handling the stuff. So since the New Testament is at the heart of the life of the church, and if it isn't, we're all in trouble, then New Testament scholarship ought to be feeding in, but also drawing from the church. I remember saying to Archbishop Brown Williams something about that to and fro, and he said, yes, being a, a bishop or a priest teaches you things about theology that you probably couldn't learn any other how. And so there, is a, there ought to be a rich commerce of the two. I mentioned that you were a bishop of Durham. Can you tell our listeners about your ministry as a bishop, especially for those who are not familiar with the Anglican church and tradition? What did that ministry look like for you? The the, the foundational thing for, for a bishop is that one is both the representative of and the leader of a group of churches, a diocese it's called. In the Durham diocese, we had roughly 250 parishes and roughly... I think 300 or more stipendiary clergy and quite a lot who were non-stipendiary, people who'd done other jobs but then were ordained and in sort of semi-retirement. And I was their pastor, as the, uh, being a bishop is being the pastor to the pastors. That's difficult because they're a very disparate bunch and they're many of them quite busy. And so trying to make that happen and working with intermediary people to make it happen is the constant challenge. But also still in England, because the church is, quote, established, unquote, which we don't really understand and nobody really understands, but it's just how it is. There is a sort of expectation that a bishop of a diocese somehow represents the diocese in the wider world, so that one of the things that went with being Bishop of Durham, for instance, was being a member of the House of Lords. So for seven years, I had a seat in the House of Lords. Now, because it takes four hours to get from where I lived into central London. I couldn't just pop in for a debate and then nip back home again. I had to plan ahead to do three days there and then 
But that gave me a chance to speak up for all sorts of concerns from the northeast of England, which is my own home territory, in the wider public arena. And that's an extraordinary privilege to do that as a Christian leader. And it's interesting that the other faith communities, both other Christian faith communities and non-Christian faith communities, basically were glad that there were bishops in the House of Lords because otherwise the rumour of God is banished from the public sphere. And so, though it's controversial, that was very much how I and my colleagues tried to seize the chance. But then there are a thousand other things that go on in a diocese concerning programs for parishes, concerning particular initiatives, concerning ecumenical work. I did a lot of work with my neighbours, particularly the newer free churches on the one hand and the Roman Catholics on the other, which sounded an odd combination. But I, I rather relished being able to introduce them to one another and, and finding that what we had in common across the board with Methodists and Syrian Orthodox and Salvation Army and whoever was so much more important than the things which divided us. And that, that was really exciting. And being a bishop, you're supposed to be a focus and means of unity, unity for the whole church. And that's something I'm passionate about. And so, uh, I mean, I could go on, but um, one of the things about being a bishop is that you have to juggle eight or ten balls in the air at any one time. And then at any moment, a phone call comes in, which means you've got another three to add to those ones. And it's it's a crazy life, but it's very exciting. And you get to see the church being the church in real time on real streets. And that's a wonderful thing. And it doesn't get into the news headlines, but you actually see real communities living out the gospel and people's lives being transformed in very different contexts. And, and then to try to facilitate that and to pray with and for it. So anyway, mm, that's what it was wonderful. all about. Mm. Well, in addition to being a prolific churchman, you have been a prolific scholar. And a lot of us mere mortals would like to know, <laughs> where do you get the energy for all of this? And have you had a strategy as you've thought about what to write about, what not to write about? Well, yes and no. It's sort of happened, like many things in life, you sort of turn a corner and think, oh, my goodness, we seem to be on the verge of something here. So that... Um, I started off doing a doctorate on Paul, and the reason for that was that I wanted to do something which would keep me in close touch with both Old and New Testaments. And so looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, which is one of the places where he's doing Old Testament exegesis such a lot, I deliberately chose that in order to be going on working with the Hebrew text and the Septuagint and so on, as well as the New Testament. Uh, and that naturally then led to teaching and writing about Paul and a bunch of articles and finally um, bits and pieces. Of, I didn't publish my dissertation as it stood, but in those days it wasn't so important as it is now to do that. But and then the articles came together. And then as I was teaching through the 1980s, I could feel frustration that a lot of my students who are pretty bright students but there was stuff that they just didn't know and didn't have the slightest idea about how first century Jewish world worked about why Jesus might have taught in parables about what all sorts of things meant and so I started to do things for the students to say this is what I really want you to know before you start so that we can then hit the ground running and that eventually, to my surprise, turned into a project which was going to be a book on Jesus and a book on Paul. And I started writing the introduction to the book on Jesus, and it turned into a book called The New Testament of the People of God, which then became the introduction to a series. And I remember the sense of shock of, oh my goodness, I'm writing three volumes here, not two. And then, 
Oh dear, it may be more than three. <laughs> and so that was kind of, oh, do we really have to do that? And the, well, yes, here it is. And then other things like the big book on the resurrection, that started out life as the last chapter of the book on Jesus. And it just grew like a cuckoo in the nest and, and, and escaped and became a long book and so on and so on. And then at a certain point, the popular thing, I was doing a lot of preaching when I was Dean of Litchfield, and the publishers would say, you just preached a series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer, whatever it is. That sounds like a nice little book there. Oh, well, maybe, okay, print it out, send it off. Wow, there's a book. But then particularly, I was invited by the Church Times, which is the main Anglican newspaper in England, to do their weekly column on the lessons for the week. You have three lessons in the lectionary, and every week for five years, I did a 500-word column on those readings, which was really exciting and quite, you know, sharp. 500 words is not a lot, um, but that was a very good discipline. And it was while I was just doing that that my publisher said, do you know, William Barclay's series of commentaries on the New Testament, very outdated. People still read it, but somebody's got to do that again, and we think it should be you. I remember thinking, hmm, well, if I can do 500 words a week for five years on the lectionary, maybe I could do that. Well, and 10 years later, <laughs> there it was. So it's that sort of thing that you just turn a corner and, oh, well, this may work, and here it is. Other than the Bible, what books would you say have most influenced your life as a Christian? Well, like many of my generation, I, I was brought up on C.S. Lewis. And I, when the Narnia stories came out in the 1950s, my mother read them to my sister and me when we were little children. And uh, then I kind of graduated onto Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. And through my teens, I read most of Lewis's popular works, some of them two or three times, some bits I sort of remember almost phrases by heart. There's a book which not many people have heard of these days, but somebody gave me when I was about 14 by an American lady called Isabel Kuhn, K-U-H-N, and the book is called By Searching. And I think it would feel terribly dated now. It's autobiographical, and her life, I think, if I remember rightly, in the 20s and 30s, growing up as a puzzled young Christian woman in the, in the United States. But there's so much there on guidance and on the way God works in people's lives and on how God calls people and the pitfalls and the dangers and so on. And through my mid-teens, that was enormously helpful to me, and I, I cherish it. And it probably isn't the sort of book that people would expect N.T. Wright to refer to, but it was really, really helpful. I'm really grateful for it. Um, the, the silly thing is that now, if people say, what are the most helpful books, um, I will go straight unhesitatingly to the great lexicons, the Greek and Hebrew lexicons, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, the Oxford Companion to Christian Thought, um, and uh, things like that, because the whole time I'm trying to extend my reach and something which I'm vaguely aware of on the edge of what I'm doing, and, okay, let's look that up and find where the key texts are and, and try to extend the map of what I think I vaguely know about. And that's actually enormously fun. Um, as gradually things unfold. And, you know, I'm 70 now, and it's going on happening, and why should I stop? <laughs> I think a lot of the people in our audience would enjoy hearing about spiritual influences on your life. You've talked a little bit about those uh, who have been role models for you as church people or as scholars. But are there people either in the church or uh, we happen to know that you've studied music, uh, you like athletics, what, what are the kinds of people who have uh, spoken into your life and really helped you to grow in your faith? When I was 13, 
I went for the first time to um, a boys' camp run by the Scripture Union. That was in southern Scotland, I guess, but I liked it so much that I went on going through my teens. Every Easter vacation, it would be like a week, and every summer vacation, it'd be like two weeks, and I looked forward to them enormously. And the, they were riotous in terms of activities, um, uh, climbing, sailing, canoeing, whatever. And the young leaders were mostly student-age leaders who had given up time to come and do this. And then every morning and evening, there would be prayers with a short talk, um, and they're pretty rigorous about the shortness of the talk. You know, if somebody went on more than eight minutes or so, the, one of the leaders would say, okay, now we're going to sing. Such. <laughs> and in other words, it wasn't too heavy. But these leaders were really good people who one could trust and enjoy playing football with or rock climbing with and then listening to them expounding a bit of the bible was just inspirational the leader of that movement in scotland at the time was a man called richard gorry who died about eight or ten years ago now and richard was a wonderfully humble man very very able very gifted as a pastor as a man of prayer as a teacher very self-effacing but he kind of took me under his wing and I think he probably saw that I had some gifts which might be developed in particular ways and so he was a mentor to me through my teens and into my early 20s and I would keep in close touch and go and see him or write letters and so on long before email of course then when I was ordained in the mid-1970s um, I had the good fortune to work with one of the college chaplains in Oxford, a man called Mark Everett, who was from a quite different tradition. He was from what we would call an Anglo-Catholic tradition, but in a very unfussy and understated way. And it's interesting, those two mentors, both very, very humble, self-effacing men, which tells me something about something. But he gave me space to be myself. He didn't try and force me into his own mold. But working alongside him, celebrating the Eucharist alongside him, I learned so much about how the personal disciplines of prayer translate into the life of the church and, and back again. And there was a sort of richness of spirituality, which enabled me not to, quote, stop being an evangelical, because that's, I hope, who I still am, but to discover that actually the world-affirming nature of a more Catholic style of worship was not something to be afraid of. It wasn't a ritualism. I mean, could anything can turn into ritualism, but um, this certainly wasn't. And so those two were kind of anchors, people to whom I look back with gratitude and say, well, I think they under God shaped me a great deal then there have been other people subsequently um, uh, counsellors and spiritual directors who I've known um, including a wonderful um, Franciscan friar who when I was Bishop of Durham he was my spiritual director and I would go and see him um, every few months and we'd just talk about anything and everything and pray and so on so I've been very blessed with with wise good people who've been there for me and and so on you will be retiring from St. Andrews at the end of this year and transitioning to Oxford, where you will serve as a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall. Uh, what are you looking forward to in this next phase of your life? I'm looking forward to the move being done. My wife and I have moved house 16 times in 48 years, and we're quite good at it, but we don't like it. <laughs> so I'm, I, I wish I could just fast forward to sometime around Christmas when hopefully all the furniture will be in position, all the books will be out of the boxes. But um, it'll be a different pace of life, uh, God willing. And uh, I won't be responsible for teaching any actual courses, but I will have the chance that if I'm working on something, I'll be able to do a couple of lectures on the side and I'll preach a little bit 
God willing, in the Wycliffe Hall Chapel. And, of course, we will be living five minutes' walk from the Bodleian Library, one of the great libraries of the Western world. And as an academic, that's kind of, oh, my goodness, this is like walking into a restaurant where they serve all your favorite food. (laughs) Where are we going to start? So there's all sorts of things about that. I'm not looking forward to being down in the south of England again. Being a northerner, we've lived in Scotland now for nearly 10 years, and my wife and I both love Scotland, and we love being by the sea where we are. So we're going to keep a base in Scotland and hopefully be able to be in Oxford during the term and in Scotland for some at least of the vacations. Um, The other good thing will be to be much closer to family. We have two daughters who live in Bristol and Lichfield, each of which is about an hour and a quarter from Oxford. Our younger son lives just outside Oxford, and he's going to be studying at Wycliffe Hall, so that's very exciting. Um, And uh, we'll be about as far south of our oldest son as at the moment we are north of him. So so closer to family will be very good at our time of life. Dr. Wright, you have walked with God for many years now as a... as a person, as a disciple of Jesus, uh, as a minister of the gospel, as a scholar. Do you have any advice uh, for people in our audience, pastors, uh, divinity students, serious lay people, uh, based on your many years of uh, walking in step with the Spirit? I would like to think that I've done at least some walking in step with the Spirit. I mean, we all know our own hearts that we wander off in this direction and that, and we're very easily pulled and have to be pulled back again. And you know, there's a reason why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses, and why we have to say that at least once or twice a day, that we need that. So I wouldn't at all hold myself up as somebody who's got it all right. And if I can imagine, we, we, your listeners don't see, but there is a blank chair at this table, and I'm imagining my wife sitting in this chair and rolling her eyes at the thought of her husband being held up as some great model of something. So I, I would say this, and I've seen this both in myself and with um, many, many people that I've worked with, that the people who stay the course are the people who spend time every day with God in prayer and in reading of scripture. And basically the people who spend time every week or two in whatever liturgical worship is appropriate in their tradition. Now, I say that in quite general terms because I'm very much aware that we're all different. I know we've all done these personality tests, whether it's the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or whatever, and knowing oneself and knowing how which patterns of prayer work for the sort of person that I am that's really important and I wouldn't say to anyone you must do exactly as I've done because you need to work with a wise helper to make sure that you are not trying to pray because that's the way you were taught at school because it actually might not be appropriate and there are the patterns of prayer but time every day in scripture and in prayer and to be disciplined about that, that is that is the sheet anchor. And it's, it's kind of obvious and basic, and we're all taught that. But I've discovered that quite a lot of people, sadly, including some in ministry, just let it slide. And you miss a day, and it doesn't seem to matter. And you miss another day, and it doesn't seem to matter too much. And I remember being told when I was quite young, and as you said, music is very important to me, um, the, the quotation from some great, I don't know if it was a pianist or a violinist, I forget, who said, if I miss my practice for a day... I notice if I miss it for two or three days, the public notice. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's the thing. So that's steady discipline. And of course, one of the nice things about looking forward to retirement is I should be able actually to have more time um, just to be more relaxed about 
um, spending time reading. I mean, at the moment, if I'm reading a passage in the morning, I do have the time and the space now that we don't have young children anymore, because um, that's what constrains if you've got, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, constantly being pulled away. But if you're walking in the mountains and you've got a compass to guide you through the mist, sometimes something happens and the compass needle seems to swing away and you have to let it settle back to north and take your course again. And the more you can say, okay, we seem to have swung away, let's get the compass back where we need to be. That's, that's the discipline. Sage advice from Dr. N.T. Wright, who is on the campus of Beeson Divinity School and Samford University this week to be our inaugural Provost Lecture Series Lecturer. Thank you very much, Dr. Wright, for being with us. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.